0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper Today, As it's Thursday it's time for John Gibbons with The Last Word of The Environment. And John as you're well aware we do have listeners who complain that you drive them to drink but you have a worry for them now I think that the quality of the beer that we may be drinking
1: is declining. Tell us why Uh, Good evening, Matt. Well, if they think I'm bitter, uh, wait till they see what's coming down the tracks with beer. Uh, First of all, beer is the world's third most consumed drink, did you know, after water and tea. So uh, beer is not just your tipple, it really is one of the world's most important drinks. And what we're seeing, Matt, basically is... uh, climate impacts are affecting the production of hops. So basically beer is a combination of water, malting barley, which of course we produce here in Ireland, yeast and hops, which we also grow to some extent in Ireland. And it's the hops that give the sort of very specific uh, bitter flavour. And they contain a a group called alpha acids and they give it its particular flavour. So, like so many other things in agriculture and in food production generally, uh, as temperatures are rising around the world, our ability to produce these type of uh, products, specifically these hops, these so-called high-quality aroma hops. These are only able to be produced in very specific uh, regions due to geography and due to so- soil and climate type. So, for example, the, the, the study that, that sort of unearthed this it looked at data on beer hops going back from 1971 all the way to 2018, and they examined them in Germany, Slovenia, and Chechia. So these would be big beer-producing uh, countries. And what they found over that period is that the areas uh, where hops are... Typically produced, many of them are getting too hot, basically, uh, for the the quality hop production that that, that we've come to know, and basically. What they found is that if when you compare hop production from say before 1994 to now, what's happening is basically the, the hops are ripening 20 days earlier and hop production itself is also declining. So you're, it's a bit like we've had similar issues, Matt, with wine, where basically the, as temperatures are rising, uh, in some places they're becoming too hot for wine production and in other places uh, we're, we're, we're opening up new fields in wine. But the, an interesting distinction, if you like, between beer and wine, if I can put it this way, and speaking as somebody who will try the both from time to time beer drinkers wine drinkers like to try different uh, palates they like to sniff around and try out things beer drinkers like beer to taste exactly one pint to taste exactly like the other pint and what's happening here is that it's getting increasingly difficult for the brewers to actually deliver the type of taste the the constancy the, the consistency of taste that beer drinkers come to expect so if you're in the pub this evening for example and you're having a pint of Guinness and then let's say you had a second pint of Guinness and it tasted different to the first one well you'd be back up to the counter wanting to know what's going on and that's basically part of the problem that are facing and i suppose let's say let's be honest matt in the scheme of things this is not the most critical uh, climate impact but it underlines that there's no part of our lives that are unaffected and i'd also say that maybe this is one of the few climate impacts that we all can agree uh, we need to address
0: I wonder, though, will there be the introduction of artificial flavourings to compensate, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I mean, to some extent they, they already exist, but it's very difficult. I mean, the, the, the secret sauce, if I can use that phrase, in beer production are hops. Mm-hmm. And these are sort of uh, minded very, very carefully. And that is really the, that, that is the, the nugget. And, and they're obviously a natural product. Now, they're, they're, they're grown and they're adapted and so on. And they have, by the way, the, 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 the hop growers and the brewers have been working frantically over the last number of decades to adjust the product to, as the as the hops change to actually make those adjustments so that the the beer drinkers don't notice but basically okay. they're finding they're finding if you like that that window uh for producing consistent beer in other words beer that tastes like the last one you had that's getting more and more difficult
0: now tell us a little bit about the plans in sweden's capital stockholm to ban petrol and diesel cars from the centre of the city.
1: That's right, Mata. I mean, this isn't the first city to do it. We know, for example, already that Paris, Athens and Madrid, they've already got significant bans on diesel cars. And London, of course, has their uh, ULEZs, which is the ultra-low emission zones that Ricky Sunak has been so busy trying to dismantle. Sweden, or Stockholm specifically, they're taking this a step further. So they're proposing that from 2025, all petrol and diesel cars will be banned from... From the, from the city centre. Now they're starting small, they're starting with 20 blocks uh, of an area covering their finance and the shopping districts and the plan is in the short term, these will be restricted to electric vehicle traffic only and then they'll decide they're probably, this is really a pilot, the plan is to expand that out and out and out and I suppose that the point they've made is that the air in Stockholm has been shown to cause lung conditions for babies and also to lead to premature death, particularly among those with, with vulnerabilities, uh, asthmatic and so on, and the elderly, so they they know that exposure to air pollution, and of course uh, motor vehicles are a huge huge vector of air pollution in urban areas these directly linked to really bad health outcomes so it's not exactly a radical step to say that uh, we should we should take a you know public health action if you like to to limit the exposure of people in city centers where they really have very few choices uh, about about being there that they shouldn't have to be exposed to dangerous levels of uh, pollutants in that area
0: now It's a bit off yet, the 2030 FIFA World Cup, but there was a surprise announcement recently that it's going to be hosted across six countries and three continents, which has caused something of a kickback from those who point out that FIFA has made big claims in the past
1: towards trying to be carbon neutral. That's right, Matt. uh back in June, a Swiss regulator found that FIFA had made false and misleading statements about carbon neutrality in relation to the World Cup in Qatar. And basically... I get
0: away, FIFA! uh, FIFA
1: would do something like that! I know, to be honest with you, I had to read it twice myself to be sure that it wasn't a mistake. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, this is, obviously, it's an organisation, like so many other organisations, they're desperate to be seen to be doing something. But what they're not desperate to do is to interfere with the business model. And the business model in this particular case, as you said, the 2030 World Cup, uh, it was granted to Spain, Portugal and Morocco, but they came up with a genius idea of also having games played in Uruguay, Argentina and Paraguay, that they would host three matches uh, to mark the tournament's centenary. So the idea basically is, we'll now have not just teams, of course, but entire thousands of fans shunting backwards and forwards transcontinental flights. And I think it's kind of funny, Matt, because this is all happening in 2030. I don't don't know if any of these folks have checked their their climate projections out towards the end of this decade. Uh, I think, this by the way is a summer tournament. Uh, It's due to kick off on the uh, 8th uh, of June 2030. Now, I... Would put a sporting bet with you, if I might, that temperatures will be too high in many of the countries listed here in June 2030 to play football during the day. They'll probably be forced to play the games at night, and even at that, they may find themselves running into difficulty. But mind you, I suppose uh, you tend to, you tend to uh, reap what you sow, and certainly FIFA and other uh, sporting organisations, they're punching way above their weight in terms of their, of their contribution. Of course, you, you know like.
0: what's happening here? What's happening is they're doing it across the three continents, even though they're only giving three games to South America and they're giving some games to Morocco and North Africa. That's so they can say, well, we've done Europe and we've done South America and we've done Africa in this World Cup. 2034 will go to Saudi Arabia. So if you're worried about the heat for the 2030 World Cup, you can be almost guaranteed now that they will definitely go to Saudi Arabia for 2034.
1: Well, I'll I'll raise your bet, Matt, and suggest that 2034 will be the world's first underground World Cup. I think they're going to have to dig an enormous hole and play the thing underground because, seriously, uh, by the mid-2030s, the notion of of doing pretty much anything outdoors in the Middle East, never mind uh, an exhausting sport like, like football... Or indeed, sitting in a stadium, sweltering, watching football. I think we've got to be kidding.
0: They'll have air-conditioned stadiums like they had in Qatar. That said, you won't be allowed to have a beer. But then again, after what you've been telling (laughs) us about the beer, maybe you wouldn't want to drink it by that stage. Tell us a little bit of your thoughts on what was announced in the budget this week in relation to a special fund Uh, From the government, from from budgetary um, excesses that will be devoted towards the environment.
1: Yeah, this was well for me anyway. I think this was a was a real breakthrough, and 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 I think you know it's easy to be cynical about budgets, especially the kind of the, the so called giveaway budgets. But this is a ring fenced infrastructure, climate, and nature fund, and basically the idea is that we're diverting some of the windfall that we're getting from corporate taxes. And I know that's a whole other day's story, but here we are. This is the situation, and the idea is to to create a fund that will hit about 14 billion euros, Matt, by 2030. And I think the idea here is to be counter-cyclical. First of all, obviously, when the economy is running hot, you've got to be careful about loading uh, huge amounts of investments into it, even even for the good stuff, because you run the risk of, 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 of being unable to deliver or of getting uh, screwed over by on the prices. So I think probably, my, my hunch on this is that the Greens, who obviously are the drivers behind this, they sort of learned their lesson between 2007 and 2011, because after they went out of power or went out of office, I should say, in 2011, uh, much of the so-called green agenda was absolutely... Thrown in the bin for the for the for the ten years that followed that by the government that followed. Now you might say there were reasons for that, but clearly it simply wasn't an issue. And I think they're very keen to ensure this time out that the idea of environment and climate investment doesn't simply become, uh, if you like, a hobby horse or a kicking boy for the next administration. And I wouldn't be cynical enough for a moment to suggest that they're concerned that Sinn Fein-led government would in any way uh, be completely negligent in this front or would have absolutely zero. Zero interest in serious climate investment. I, I, I wouldn't think that for a second.
0: But tell us how is this money going to be spent? I mean there's talk of building up a fund of about 14 billion euro by 2030. But is the money that needs to be spent now rather than saving it for the future?
1: Well, there, that is the point. Now, first of all, uh, 3.1 billion of it, Matt, are, is, due to, is earmarked for 2025 to 2030. So that, that's sort of, if you like, that's been brought forward. And the 14 billion sovereign fund, they're, they're basically two funds. And these are also, of course, being administered, uh, if you like, at arm's length from government. So they can't be raided, for example, for if, if somebody runs short on the health budget, they can't go and raid these budgets. And that is absolutely critically important. So what are the kind of things that we're likely to see investment in? Probably I would suggest accelerating, Matt, the stuff that is working. So, for example, the National Retrofitting Programme is working, right? Um, the addition of, of solar PV is working. These are things that are making a real difference to people's lives and increasingly so over time. So I would see a lot more money going into that. I think we'll see continued supports for things like uh, electric vehicles. I know you alluded to the increasing numbers. I think probably by the end of this decade, uh, I imagine that upwards of 50%, maybe upwards of 70% of all new vehicles uh, on Irish roads will be electric. I think that's nothing to do with policy. That's just the way the industry has gone. So there are plenty of places now, in to In fairness, the money. that's
0: the way the industry has gone, but because there have been various restrictions placed upon them by the European Union as to output. Whether they've wanted to or not they've had to move towards electric vehicles and that's why so many of the new cars on the roads by 2030 will be because that's all that's available to purchase.
1: I think that's fair but I suppose industry has always responded to regulations. Once upon a time there was regulations that said you had to put seatbelts in cars. The industry believe it or not fought that for years but they lost that fight thankfully. And equally in this the industry they you know they, they tend to like to do today what they did yesterday. So they've been very, very slow and they've had to be dragged kicking and screaming, especially as you know, Matt, in countries like Germany where you got the, the, the motor industry is politically powerful. They have resisted change, but guess what? Change is coming on this one whether they like it or not. And in fact uh, we've seen this with some of the major German car, car producers. They've really got caught with their pants down uh, and they've been outflanked, outmaneuvered by much more uh, fast-moving okay. uh, I suppose manufacturers coming in, particularly from China.
0: John Gibbons, thank you for our weekly environment spot.
1: The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30.